tonight, Will. Um, tonight we are looking, considering the entire book of Judges, um, but I, I'm going to begin by reading a, a, a representative passage from Judges chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 23. This is uh, Judges chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 23, reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord and God and the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them and bowed down to them, and they, were provo- and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to, the, to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was, was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who had plundered them. Yet, he, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside uh, from the way in the, which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this prophet, this people, have transgressed my, co- my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly as he did, uh, not give them into the hand of Joshua. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So Judges is a bit of a strange book. It's filled with incredible stories of miracles and battles, uh, amazing highs and abysmal lows in the life of the nation of Israel. Even as dark as the book of Judges might be, I I think we must say that apart from the miraculous elements that it covers in terms of the, the, apart from the, if you remove, not remove, but if you kind of don't focus so much on that, but you take in the terms of the battles, the violence, the, the, the focus on human virtue and depravity, uh, the book of Judges might actually uh, strike a little closer to modern life than we might want to admit. But if all we have is, you know, the shock value of Judges, then we can actually miss out on the meaning of this book, and in so doing, we will spiritually malnourish ourselves by missing the lessons that it has for us. And so as we seek to discern the message of this book and its complicated features, we can at least, we can boil it down to to two major things that the book of Judges teaches us. First, the book of Judges teaches us about how to live as God's people. 
through the, in, the encouragements and warnings that we find in it. Second, the book of Judges teaches us about Jesus, the true judge and true king that we need. But before we consider those, um, I wanted us to spend some time reflecting on a, a, a helpful warning. I was reading in a uh, theological dictionary this week and came across a very helpful warning that would help steel us against uh, three very common mistakes when it comes to understanding the, the, the message of the book of Judges, and we would do well to consider those. So we're going to begin uh, there tonight with uh, how to misunderstand the, the book of Judges. Uh, and so first, and there's many ways to misunderstand things, let me give you some common ones to avoid. Uh, mistake number one is to see Judges as simply a morality tale. Um, it, the most common, uh, this is probably one of those common mistakes that's made with the book of Judges because there's a lot of bad behavior in this book. And so it's pretty low-hanging fruit when, you're, when you look at, read the book of Judges and you see, see that bad stuff? Don't do that. And likewise, when you see the good stuff, you see, see the good stuff? Do that. All right? Now, okay, well, what, what's wrong with that, though? What's wrong with highlighting negative behavior to be avoided and, and, and good behavior to be emulated? Well, there's nothing wrong with it per se, and we will actually consider the encouragements and warnings that the book of Judges has for us. Uh, but we have to beware of a kind of graceless moralism uh, that, that interprets these passages primarily to speak about only good and bad behavior. Um, in seminary, we, uh, uh, we, we had, <laughs> these were called the killer bees. Be, uh, th th these are things the killer bees a pastor should avoid. Be good. Be like Daniel. Be like David. Be like Mary. Why? Because you're killing your people by loading them with bricks on their shoulders if you don't lead them to the cross. And so um, our moral behavior is certainly of importance to the Lord, absolutely. But it is not meant to be disconnected from the gospel. Why do we obey? Why is it that we are to follow the faithful example set for us in scriptures? Because we belong to the Lord. Because we were bought by his mercy in the blood of his own son. We, were not, we don't behave in order to gain his favor, to gain his merit. We don't avoid the bad things because God is going to Zeus-like throw lightning bolts at us from heaven. And we're going to get bad karma or something. I, I, if you're into Christians who talk about getting bad karma, and you're like, we're Christians, we don't do karma. All right, like that is a Hindu thing. That is another thing. But I'm always surprised when I run into Christians that are like, eh, karma. I'm like, you go to church. Like, <laughs> that's not a Christian thing. All right. <laughs> um, but that's not how that's not how Christianity works. That karma is a works based system. You do bad things. Bad things happen to you. Bad, and then your next life is going to be worse. Like, that's the whole thing. You're earning your way into transcendence. It's a Hindu, it's a Hindu uh, um, and Buddhist type thing, all right? It's like it is a works-based salvation. But that is not the Christian gospel. And so we need to be careful that we don't feed into a Christian version of that by just talking about good and bad behavior in, um, uh, in Judges. And, and, so the, and, so, and because Judges is not uh, a wisdom fable. This is not Aesop's fables that we're reading. These aren't morality plays like the ancient Greeks would write. Uh, they are, in fact, history, true history that conveys theology that actually has a role in God's plan of redemption. 
If we merely boil everything down to just good and bad examples, then we'll not only miss the deeper themes underneath, but we'll actually miss the gospel itself, which is present in the book. Uh, the, the second mistake is, is kind of related to this, but is to view judges as a kind of uh, melodrama. My grandfather and his church, used to, they used to put on melodrama plays. My grandfather would be the, um, he would always like, he always, he always played the villain, you know, the cackling villain with the mustache who has tied up the, the, tied up the fair maiden on the railroad tracks, you know, that you know, snidely whiplash from the Bullwinkle shows, you know, like just, just <laughs> you know, just, not, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, kind of people can have that view of the book of Judges. They can kind of just basically write off the book of Judges as just this whole complete slog into darkness. But, it, but if that's the case, uh, then what are we supposed to do with clear examples of faithfulness, especially those that are cited by name by the author of Hebrews in chapter 11? He names them. He names Jephthah, right? Like he names people. We go like, well, why did you name that judge? Why don't you name like Othniel? All right, one of the first ones. He was like a good one. Nothing bad was said about him. You could have named him. But you had to go Jephthah, who may or may not have sacrificed his daughter. Like, like, why did you name him? But he did. So that means that we don't need to, the author of the Hebrews doesn't need to reconsider his writing. <laughs> we need to reconsider our thinking when it comes to that. Because as dark as the book gets, as awful as the crimes committed against God and man are in this book, we do ourselves a, dis a disservice if we mischaracterize the book by ignoring the truly wonderful things that many of these judges accomplished uh, by faith and in the Lord's power, even if they themselves were complicated figures. Um, similarly, um, uh, so you have a melodrama with a snidely whiplash, but also there's this weird kind of trend in, in recent times. I mentioned it several times throughout the series, uh, and this is, I don't know, it seems popular more amongst uh, um, uh, scholars, uh, some, some evangelical scholars lately, um, and even some pastors, uh, but to, to almost kind of uh, go the opposite direction. Uh, to, to go, oh, well, no, 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 actually, it, and almost have an overly positive view of judges. And, the, and so, and, and this is in part of a, a response, it's kind of a reaction uh, to the, the um, uh, uh, to the hyper-negative interpretations of judges that see no light in the book. And so they kind of respond uh, and say, oh, well, you know, and, and they look at Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 says, it cites these judges, and so these judges are good in the eyes of the New Testament author, so that means they must be good. And so we go back and we must reinterpret everything they did in light of this positive evaluation. Uh, and, um, but, in, but in doing so, I would argue that they're o they end up over-applying that and kind of end up actually whitewashing some very sinful behavior. The best examples, uh, just two of them, are Gideon and Samson. Um, uh, uh, the, you know, the overly positive view of Gideon will, um, will reinterpret his use of the fleece as a good thing uh, that he was doing right. I read this by, by, by a scholar. Uh, that it was actually a good thing that what he was doing, um, clearly, and because uh, and because God never directly says you're doing a bad thing, and so and the author of Hebrews mentions him, so therefore this was not a bad thing, um, and uh, and then uh, and then and then they also tend to downplay or kind of not really say much. I just noticed that it gets real short towards the end with talking about Gideon's idolatry when he fashions an idol. And they're kind of like, yeah, well he did a bad thing, you know, and kind of they move on really fast, and, and so. Um, and so, but Gideon's use of the fleece was, uh, was testing God. It was sinful. 
And that's why he was saying to God, please don't be mad at me. Please don't kill me. Like, don't, uh, don't, you know, don't punish me, even though you deserve, even though I deserve it. But I'm so afraid. I need you. I need to test you. And God was gracious to Gideon. That's what we need to see there. God was gracious to Gideon. And so, uh, but and Samson is another one. Um, we're, we're required to Samson uh, to reinterpret several moments of sinful behavior uh, with Samson. There's several, m- many of them, uh, but uh, such as like eating honey from the carcass of a dead lion. Um, now, normally we're just saying that's gross and unsanitary. But of course, we talked about that. He was a Nazarite, so uh, um, and, and so he um, he had taken Nazarite vows, and so one of the three key Nazarite vows was don't touch dead stuff. Right. And so when he ate honey out of a, out of a carcass and then he then he gave it to his parents and spread the un, uncleanness, un, uncleanness to them and didn't tell them. All right. And so and any any Jew, any Jewish reader who knew their Deuteronomy, which they would have, would go, hey, don't do that. That's bad. That's bad news. They wouldn't go. Oh, I guess it's all right. Samson did. You know, it's like it's and so uh, that and then the other thing was and I literally read this and I couldn't believe it. But there's in in in. Chapter 16, verse 1, it says, uh, Samson went uh, uh, and found a prostitute in, Phil- in, in Philistia and went into her. And, the, and, and, and so an, and the guy actually wrote, I respect this guy, but he goes, well, you know, it doesn't, it just, you know, he probably just went to her house, maybe to tell her about the Lord. I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure if, I'm pretty sure that's happened where people said, no, I was just telling her about the Lord. So, uh, so, but we're like, no, I'm sorry. No, he was sinning. And, and, and so, but that kind of view, it's over applying it starts putting this rosy picture on it's like no 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 samson was a mixed bag he did amazing things but he was controlled by his lust he was controlled by his eyes until they were removed from his head and so um it just it requires all kinds of um interpretive contortions that sound honestly kind of it sounds like someone trying to discover to to describe how how it's going with a very troubled relative but they don't want to say what's actually going on they're like oh tim he's working on himself um upstate for a while um what's he doing oh well um he's kind of at a camp like one that you can't leave with bars okay he's in prison he's in prison uh, you know so it's like you know it's just like this overly cheerful uh, description you're like no okay they did some bad stuff the reality is that judges refuses to be classified in purely positive or negative terms and it requires a careful reading and thoughtful meditation upon the message that the author is trying to relay to us and so, uh, and the final mistake um, uh, that that <clears throat> that may seem a little more obscure than the other two is uh, is, but it has no less been argued is that judges is a rejection of spirit uh, of of spirit inspired leadership of leadership especially generally and then spirit inspired leadership. Um, uh, there are there are those who have read the book of Judges and concluded that Judges rejects the idea of centralized leadership, um, that it rejects even the idea of kingship altogether which is somewhat baffling because that seems to be the opposite message that is said four times in the final chapters that Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It wasn't like, thus, that's a good thing. It was that Israel needs a king. That was the point. Um, Others uh, argue that the book is a rejection of uh, any kind of spirit-enabled or inspired leadership in favor of more atomized and individual religion. Uh, when I say spirit-inspired, I don't mean some random person that shows up and t- wants to tell you what the spirit told them last night. Um, uh, uh, what we're talking about is this, uh, is what we see in the Old Testament, where the spirit would come upon certain individuals and, and anoint them, uh, be present with them, and enable them to lead God's people. And, and, um, 
And that's an, and that's an important development uh, because that really comes to a, a pretty uh, significant development when that spirit is poured out on a certain carpenter uh, who is anointed uh, without measure. Uh, all right, so we'll, we'll get to that later. But, but the book of Judges is not a quiet rejection of leadership or, 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 the, uh, or messianic leadership in the sense of the spirit-anointed leadership. So we need to avoid reading the book of Judges as a morality play, as, uh, as, as a kind of melodrama of success or failure, uh, or as a rejection of leadership. And we kind of, so clearing the road now of, of several of those obstacles, we can get into our two major points. And the, and the first is that uh, Judges teaches us about living as God's people. Judges teaches us about living as God's people and, 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 and positively and negatively. Positively, Judges encourages us in the faith as the people of God. And so, I mean, listen to the author of Hebrews. This is, the, this is what he pulls from, uh, from considering the examples of, of, of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah meditating on uh, the period of the judges. He says, what more shall I say? Because he'd been going on about uh, going all the way back to Abraham and Moses and going on. So he says, he says, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. And so one principle of interpreting scripture is to, is to read the Old Testament through the New Testament. That is one of the key ones. And in fact, I have an entire commentary, it's like this thick in my office, called New Testament use of the Old Testament. <laughs> so, and it's just, it's due total that. And there's a whole series of those books that talks about this. Um, but how does the author of Hebrews refer back to the judges in their deeds? He cites them along with a host of others, such as Abraham, Moses, and David, to who set examples for us as men of faith. Okay, well, but what is faith? Well, the author of Hebrews says, of course, he says, well, I'm glad you asked, because I wrote that at the beginning of the chapter in, chapter, in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. Faith is demonstrated by judges such as Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and certainly the other ones that he had in mind that he didn't name. That the the faith that, that was demonstrated by them was the assurance of the promises of the covenant, which were coming true before the very eyes of the people of Israel. God had promised the people of Israel to have a place, to be a people, to, have, to be under God's rule and blessing. And we see all of this in part in the time of the judges, as Israel was indeed in the promised land, had multiplied into 12 tribes, and were being ruled by judges that God was raising up one after the other. And so we are encouraged by the exa these examples of faithful men and women uh, to walk by faith in the promises of God, especially on this side of the cross. To take the heart that if, we were that if these were commended by faith, uh, for, for their faith, then so shall we be rewarded for our faithfulness as we trust in God and we walk by faith. God promises eternal rewards and blessings for the obedience of his children, not as a way to merit his acceptance and love, but as the avenue for him to pour out his delight 
on his beloved children. And so we are encouraged, as the author of Hebrew wants us to be, to live for God even against the harshest situations and the slimmest of odds. We are encouraged to trust in God, not to compromise with a paganizing culture or even a paganizing church, to hold fast to our God in his truth. And so Judges is a book of tremendous encouragement about what can be done when we follow God by faith. However, Judges also warns us against covenant unfaithfulness. It is easy to overlook this, but the backdrop of the book of Judges and their disobedience and the whole problem is covenant. It is the covenant, covenant faithfulness. The book of Judges has a unique structure to it because it has two introductions and two conclusions. Or two prologues, two epilogues, whatever you want to call it. And um, the, it, the, tw- the, the twin introductions of the book at the start, um, they, they are working from the time of Joshua and the divinely sanctioned mission to take the land that God had given to his people and brought them to. But, uh, but their disobedience and failure set up this cyclical pattern that we talked about before that, w- that, that would occur, would start with idolatrous rebellion and then move to divine punishment through an external oppressor, finally, and then, and then a crying out of deliverance, and then God raising up a deliverer who would deliver them, and then, uh, and this is what the passage we read at the beginning was describing, this cycle, and then, uh, and, then, and then the judge would die, and then they would just go over and over again. But then also, but also the author says there, and we saw as we went through the book, that as it went over and over again, um, uh, the people got worse and worse. So it wasn't so much a circle as it becomes a spiral as Israel starts to go down the drain. All right. And so, and, and so you have that, you have that, but you have, so you have the double introduction that sets this up and then the double epilogue that at the end, the, the double conclusion at the end that focuses on two Levites. And it's interesting that, the, that he focuses on there. He wants to say, you know, as I wrap up the book, I'm going to tell you about two, these, these two occasions, about these two Levites. And, and these, why Levites, though? Well, because Levites were the priests. They were the barometer of the spiritual health of the nation. And the first Levite, we found out at the end, was Moses' own grandson, Jonathan, is perfectly satisfied, we learn, uh, to be a priest in the idolatrous shine, shrine of Dan, a city that was far north of the covenant territory that God had assigned to the tribe. The second Levite, we learned, was a, well, we didn't learn his name, but we learned that he was a horrifically immoral man whose cowardice and pride in the face of gross immorality helped facilitate a civil war within Israel itself. Taken together, the Levites display how far the Israelites have fallen, both spiritually and morally. But the measure of that fall is, is, is the standard by which it's measured is, is found in terms of the law of God in his covenant between him and his people. Remember, remember the passage you read, it said, what did they do? They didn't obey the commandments. Where do you find the commandments? In the covenant. Not only in Exodus chapter 20, but also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
where the, co where the, where the Ten Commandments are restated and put into the official covenantal frame. Um, and, so, and so the book of Judges stands as a grave warning to the church today about how far we can fall if we allow immorality, the neglect of spiritual truth, and the disobedience to the word of God go unexamined, unchecked, and unchallenged. Secondly, Judges teaches us about Jesus. Now, we know this is true because, again, I said earlier that uh, we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And, uh, and Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, says that all the Old Testament is about him. Uh, and that is confirmed in other passages and writings in the New Testament. Um, but, but Jesus says it very clearly. It's all about me. All right. And the book of and the book of Judges is about Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus and pointing to Jesus in two specific ways. And first, that Christ is the true deliverer. He is the true judge. Uh, judges were raised up by God. They were empowered by the spirit to lead the people of God, to overthrow the oppressors of the people and and to um, and to lead the people to follow after the Lord. Uh, judges were not priests born in a line of succession or coming from a particular class or tribe. Judges came from anywhere uh, God wanted them to come from, and it was a gifting of the Spirit that enabled them to lead. Um, now, the mistake that some make at this point uh, is to say, therefore, trust your pastor and your elders, because we have been given to you to lead you, and they kind of go off on this uh, um, that, that, that bit of a tangent. Um, but no, here we have to go to the one who is the true judge. We have to go to the one who is the true deliverer of his people, the one upon whom his, uh, the Spirit has been poured without measure, and that is Jesus Christ. The people of Israel was, were stuck in a cycle of sin, oppression, crying out, and momentary deliverance. They needed one who was going to come and break that cycle. But no one could. Not even Samson for all his strength. Could he break that cycle? No other king or prophet or priest would come that was powerful enough, strong enough, holy enough to break it. But Christ was. He is. Jesus came to destroy the power of the devil, and he did so on the cross. And he delivers his people through his word and spirit, which he has poured out upon his church, in Acts chapter 2, as part of the new covenant that was established in his blood. So Jesus received the Spirit at his baptism, enabling him for his, for his ministry, his mission, right? the special anointing of the Messiah. But he also poured out his Spirit in fulfillment of the prophet Joel in, 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 in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. He poured out his Spirit into his people. And in so doing... He brought forth a people who are washed in his blood, renewed in their natures, striving after God even while we still fight against the flesh and the world. And so Jesus is the true judge, the ultimate judge, the true deliverer of God's people. There is no one greater uh, that is to come. And, and, I mean, and, what, and think about the terms of the book of Revelation that describe the return of Christ. What does he come? How does he come? He comes with a sword. He comes with judgment. He comes with the blood of his enemies on, on the hem of his robe. He comes with power, right? 
the deliverer in the end. He comes in might and glory. And uh, along with this, Christ is the true king. Now, oddly enough, uh, the book of Judges uh, does not cover uh, the very last judge. Uh, he gets his own two books, Samuel. So. But the end of the book of Judges um, does signal that a change is coming. The king is coming because he is needed. Samuel will be the final judge of the people of Israel. And then Saul uh, will come. And what tribe does Saul come from? Benjamin. Isn't that interesting? It says, like, it's a lot more interesting to learn that Saul comes from Benjamin when you've got judges fresh in your mind. You're like, whoa, Benjamin? <laughs> they all but, they all but, uh, they, they about got wiped out. <laughs> right? I remember that. So, and, it, and can anything good come out of Benjamin at this point? You know, like, it's kind of surprising when you see him coming out of there. But Saul fails. And then David comes, the greatest king in the history of Israel, who becomes the very standard of kingship. Uh, for the years to come, uh, and he, here is a man finally after God's own heart. And he does great good for the people of Israel. And then his own son Solomon rises up after him and comes and ushers in the golden age of Israel. Peace and pros prosperity like, like they have never known. The, 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 biblical, uh, uh, you know, the, Israel, uh, the, the biblical picture of peace is every man sitting under the shade of his own fig tree. Right, and that's what it was. Rest on every side. That's the picture of peace. And that's what they experience under Solomon. Uh, they've never had that before. And they enjoy it. But David and Solomon both fail. David commits adultery and murder amongst other sins. Solomon becomes a lawbreaker and an idolater. A whole host of sinful kings follow who are either worse but never better than David. You can almost hear, at the end of the Old Testament, echoes of the end of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But then Christ comes, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the true king who fulfills all the prophecies made about him, who will usher in the kingdom of God. Here is the true son of David. Who, will be, who is greater than David, who is indeed David's Lord. The true king who rules and governs his people even today. As the people of God, who have the spirit of God living in them, Christ has determined to govern his church, to carry out the Great Commission through elders. I said you know, earlier, I said we don't just jump directly to eldership and pastors and be like, therefore, trust me, right? But... Uh, but we see in the scriptures that he issues out his great commission through the church that is ordered, ordered and ruled by the elders. And the elders don't rule as kings, but as shepherds. And not as chief shepherds, but as under shepherds who work for the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who evaluates them, who will judge them and reward them accordingly. Uh, and... Um, and so, and, and so we have, and so what we're talking about, what I'm mentioning here is just highlighting that this idea of, uh, of, of Christ mediating his rule is not to say that pastors are rulers or kings or elders are rulers or kings, but that is that the spirit-given calling to elders is to follow Christ, to shepherd the flock with gentleness and love 
and holiness to protect the flock from the wolves, to lay down our lives for the flock that God has placed under our care. That is the calling of the elders in the ministry of Christ. Further, we must also state that Christ mediates his rule not only through the government of the church and the office of elder, but also in the very hearts of every individual Christian in whom his spirit dwells. It's not only through the elders, but it's in every individual Christian, for the spirit of God is poured out not merely in the elders of the church, but in every Christian, in everyone who belongs to the Lord, to the gospel. And there's more, there's more to say about all of this, um, to be sure, um, but I don't want to lose our focus here. Because the book of Judges is not a morality play, it's not a melodrama, it's not the rejection of leadership. Uh, the book of Judges encourages us as God's people to walk by faith in accordance with God's word as his covenant people who have been washed in the blood of his own son. The book warns us about the tragic consequences that sin can have upon the church, upon the body of Christ today. Most of all, the book of Judges points us to Jesus. It is very clear the, judge, the book of Judges is very clear in the very starkest of terms that we are unable to deliver ourselves from the cycle of sin and death. We can't do it. Our leaders cannot do it. Our elders and our pastors can't deliver us from sin and death. We need deliverance that comes from the outside. Even more, we need a king who will rule over us, and that is Jesus. All of the order and disorder in the book of Judges, the peace and the chaos, the light and the darkness, all points us to him. This is the conclusion even that the author of Hebrews comes to when he concludes that chapter with all these examples of faith. He finishes that up and then he opens up with chapter 12, right? And, he, and he, what does he say there? He says, and, and, and his conclusion here is, is our own tonight. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. Lord, it is a mesmerizing read. It is a horrifying read. We see the sin, the depravity and wickedness of man at work. It is amazing when we see the, the miracles that you do, the deliverance that you give, the grace that you pour out again and again, time after time, the patience and pity and mercy that you show to people who do not deserve it, and what a testimony to your grace and love to us today that we find in your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we meditate upon this book, as we consider the meaning of it, Father, that we certainly would consider our own actions and, and, and attitudes and thoughts and that we would seek to be faithful, that we would seek to be, um, that we would seek to avoid uh, um, uh, sin and wickedness, Father, but um, but even more than that, Lord, uh, may we look to Jesus, who is both the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who, by, by whose cross we, we live forever with you, by whose cross we have hope and life and eternal joy. And Father, so we pray that as we would renew our own commitments and efforts and uh, that you would refresh us with strength and energy to live for you and, to, and that we would seek, seek to run after Jesus, set our eyes upon him and run the race that you have set before us, Father. Strengthen us, bless us, convict us, bring us to repentance and help us, Lord, to love you and to love one another until we come and behold your son's beautiful face forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's.